This morning we are focusing on the wise men who rejoiced when they saw the star. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The reason they rejoiced is because the star led them to Jesus whom they worshipped. We should rejoice this morning in whoever and whatever has contributed to leading us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that individual who shared with you the good news of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all the experiences, the traditions, the messages, the music, all that has contributed to your appreciation and understanding and ultimately worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is what is central to this particular portion of Scripture. It is the key element. We find in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, that the wise men said, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 8, Herod feigns, fakes a desire to worship Jesus. He says, when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him also. And then we find in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, that they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they indeed worshipped him. So our theme this morning are lessons concerning worship that we can learn from the wise men. Lessons concerning worship that we can learn from the wise men. Now I've been in a series on Matthew. It's been a pretty long series. And back in September of 2013, I preached on Matthew chapter 2. And in that message, I spoke about such things as how many wise men were they? Where did they come from? What were they like? What was the star? How should we view the star? How did the wise men know what the star meant? All of those things that I'm not going to address today. So if you're interested in that, go to the archives, September 1st, 2013, and listen to the message. This morning, I'm going to zero in on the worship of the wise men. The first thing I want us to note from this text is the wise men came and openly declared their desire to worship Jesus. Notice the first two verses. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and have come to worship him. These wise men have come a long way in order to worship Jesus. 
Where from the east they came, we don't know exactly. The Greek word that is used here is used of the priestly class in Persia. So somewhere probably in Mesopotamia. It is the same word that is used in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, of those individuals that King Nebuchadnezzar had summoned to try to interpret his dream. These wise men would have traveled most likely for months and perhaps as long as a year or more, as we find out in verse 8 of how Herod wanted to know when this star arose so he would know how old the baby was and eventually he kills every child two years old and under. So when you deduct all of that, these wise men have been traveling quite some time. The wise men were quite open concerning their desire to worship Jesus. Notice it says in verse 2, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. They didn't need to offer the reason. All they were concerned about is finding where Jesus was. They didn't need to tell people why they wanted to know where Jesus was. They could have said, well, we're curious about a child that was born, the one who is going to be called King of the Jews. They could have simply said that they were seeking him after seeing a star. But they were not ashamed about the motivation. And they openly declared their allegiance by saying that we have come to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. And in saying such, they created quite a stir. Notice Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the this is most likely primarily the fact that they said that they were seeking the one who was born, who is king of the Jews. King of the Jews. That's what would have perturbed Herod. For Herod was given the title by the Roman Senate of being king of the Jews. That's who he was by Roman decree. He is king of the Jews. Now they are saying a baby has been born who is king of the Jews. So that troubled him, our text says. It's a word for deep agitation. He was moved, troubled, agitated, upset when he heard of these wise men who were coming seeking the king of the Jews. But there's more to it than simply the fact that they said that the king of the Jews was born. This is a baby. What threat 
would a baby really be to the government and control of Herod? How much would Herod really, practically speaking, have to be concerned about an infant? Certainly, an infant can't immediately rise to power, can he? I mean, can he really depose Herod? Why would he be so upset when he heard that a baby was born and ultimately seek to kill this child by having everyone in that area two years old and younger slain? I submit to you, it is not just the fact that he is the king of the Jews, but it is the statement of the wise men that accompanied it. And that is, we have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. There are religious connotations associated with this child's kingship. Religious connotations that Herod was aware of. Religious connotations that come into uh, play when we find in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He didn't say, where is the king of the Jews to be born? He said, where is the Christ to be born? As we looked at that title last week, we saw that Christ carried with it three connotations. One was kingship. The second was prophet. The third was priest. It had a religious connotation. And now these Wise men said, we have come to worship Jesus. There would be, if you will, a degree of fanaticism that would be associated with this child. The Messiah. The Christ. The one that had been looked for for so long. And Herod was smart enough to know that for the Jewish people, though he was a child, they would have tremendous allegiance to him. And the thought that the allegiance would be to this child, as opposed to himself, was the threat. And lest you think that is far-fetched, Herod was absolutely right. Because Herod is going to say to these wise men that he, that is Herod, desires to worship this child also. So when you find this child, you come back and you tell me. Because I want to worship him too. Of course, he was lying. That's not why he wanted to know where the child was. He wanted to know where the child was so he could kill him. But the wise men didn't know that. 
He says, you tell me when you have found him. After they have found the baby, the wise men are warned and they don't return to Herod. They go another way. Already, their allegiance to Christ is greater than their allegiance to Herod. And you see, that's a part of what worship is all about. When you worship something, that has the place of highest regard in your life. Nothing is more important than what you worship. It was the statement of absolute commitment to this child. That was disturbing to Herod. So the king summons the religious leaders to ask them concerning the birth of the Messiah, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. These religious leaders were able to answer their question. They said in verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote the scripture, Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now these religious leaders must have understood some of what is going on here. For we find that not only is Herod disturbed, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. So the whole city and the environs, everyone is troubled, everyone is upset. And they're upset because they know Herod is going to be upset. And they know what Herod is like and how miserable he can make their existence. After all, he's going to kill these children that are two years old and younger. So they hear that the king of the Jews is born. The religious leaders are, are summoned, and he asks them, where is the Christ going to be born? And they tell him. They're smart enough to know that what is creating this stir is the wise men seeking to worship this child. What is interesting to me is, number one, that Herod feigns a desire to worship Jesus, verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and we have found him. Bring me word that I may too come and worship him. Of course, he wasn't interested in worshiping Jesus, but he feigns a desire to worship Jesus. But what I find to be striking is that these religious leaders have no interest or desire to worship Jesus. Herod takes these wise men seriously. He takes this threat seriously. 
Herod, this secular leader, although he has Edomite background, he's an Edomian, knew the religious teaching about the Messiah. He at least feigns worship of Jesus, but wants to put him to death. But these religious leaders show no interest or concern whatsoever, either in protecting the child or in worshiping the child. Not one of them accompanies the wise men to Bethlehem. They knew the scriptures. They knew it was what was said. It was announced by the Magi, given credence by the king, and all the, the scripture says is they're troubled by it. I find that to be interesting. So you have three quite different responses. First, the response of Herod, who feigns the worship of Jesus. There are a lot of people today that are feigning the worship of Jesus. They gather in religious settings. They come to special musical programs. They sing carols that proclaim Christ's deity, Christ's virgin birth, with smiles and with joy, and don't believe a word of it. which I've always kind of found kind of strange and amusing. They don't have any more confidence in that than they do in Santa Claus coming to town. But it's part of the Christmas season. That obviously isn't what worship is all about. Then you have the religious leaders who know the scriptures, know what the Bible says, but show no interest whatsoever in worshiping Jesus. And unfortunately, that can readily be seen in our society as well. Preachers, teachers, who know the scriptures, and some of them who are expounding the Christmas story this very morning, and yet don't believe in the virgin birth, and don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and don't worship him as such. And then you have this third group, these foreign individuals, come down to us tradition as kings, probably from the Old Testament passages that speak about kings that will come and offer gifts to the Christ. And that's the heritage of why we think of these individuals as as kings. But people that are coming from foreign nations to worship the king of the Jews because they understand that in the king of the Jews it's much more than just the Jewish nation. But he came for the world. 
And so the angel said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So these foreign dignitaries come to worship the Christ, the King of the Jews. Secondly, the wise men did in fact worship Jesus. The wise men continued on their way in order to worship Jesus. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Now the star appears again, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Evidently, this star disappeared, and then they reappeared. And that's why it says in verse 10 that when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It was back. And it led them precisely to the place where the child lay. You can see a sovereign God at work in all of this. Providing a star. Causing the star to disappear. Having the wise men go to Jerusalem. Announce the birth of the king of the Jews. The response of Herod. All of this is under the hand of a sovereign God. Now, back on track, they come to the place where Jesus lay. And the wise men worship Jesus, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, fell down, and worshipped him. First thing I want to point out to you is they worshipped Jesus, and they worshipped only Jesus. Notice verse 11. And going to the house, they're not at the stable any longer, they're at a house, time has passed, and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Mary is there. Mary is close by. Mary is with the child, and they fell down and worshipped not them, but him. Only Jesus is worthy of our worship, for he alone is God. Secondly, they worshipped Jesus by falling down before him. Notice verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. N-A-S, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. King James, they fell down and worshipped him. NIV, says they bowed down and worshipped him. The reason I'm stressing this is because it is a word to prostrate yourself before. When we think of the word to bow, we think of this. Or we think of bowing one's head. 
It is a deferential way in which you treat a superior. When you come, even today, in the presence of a king, we have a president, but if we were in England, if you came into the presence of the king, you would bow if you were a man. If you were a lady, you would curtsy. I won't demonstrate that. I would fall on my head. You know what a curtsy is. The same was true in the day and age of the Roman Empire. You bowed to a king. This is a word that says you fall down flat. They laid on their face before this baby. And it's more than just getting down to his level. It's a statement of absolute surrender. They worshipped him. They were putting themselves at his disposal. They were demonstrating absolute allegiance to this child. Seen in reality in their return in a different way, not going back to Herod. But in the very nature of worship is this declaration of submission. We worship Jesus by submitting to him. Next, they worship Jesus by making an offering of gifts to him. Notice Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him. If you have an ESV and you mark your Bible, I would circle the word offered. Offered. If you have an NIV, King James, or virtually any other translation, it uses the word presented to him, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But I want to camp out on this for just a moment. The word that is used here can be translated broadly. It can mean primarily two different things. It can mean simply to bring something to someone, such as to give or to present. Or, it's also a word that is used specifically to bring an offering. Listen to some verses in which this exact same word is used. Matthew 5.23 So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remain that you your brother has something against you. So offering your gift at the altar. Speaking of making a sacrificial gift in the temple. 
Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Talking about healing and the sacrificial offering that was to be made in the Old Testament. He says, go and make that offering before Moses. In the book of Hebrews, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Offering gifts and sacrifices. Same word. Because our text specifically says in the passage, verse 11, that they worshipped him, I would submit to you the ESV has got it right. They are making an offering to him. They are proclaiming and recognizing the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. They are acknowledging that he is God. And so they offer these three gifts, not as a sacrifice, but as an offering usually associated with a free will offering. It's that which, there, there were two classifications of offerings in the Old Testament. Actually, there's many, but two real big ones, and that were guilt offerings or sin offerings and free will offerings. There were those things that you had to offer. You had to make it right. If you sinned, you had to make it right. You had to offer a lamb or a bull or whatever the case may be. But there were things that were required of you. You were to give a tithe. You give a tenth of everything you had. A tithe is a tenth. That was required in the Old Testament. An offering, a free will offering, was anything above and beyond that. Not what you had to give, but you wanted to give. So here, these wise men come offering a gift. Freely giving, not which they were required to give, but they wanted to give. And they give gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now there's a long tradition that's associated with these gifts. It goes all the way back to Origen. Origen was a church father, born in 184 A.D. And in Origen's commentary, on this particular portion of scripture, he speaks of the significance of these three gifts. Let me just tell you what he says. First, they offer gold because gold was fitting for a king. Did that make sense? We're just going to move on. What about frankincense? Frankincense was the only perfume that was permitted 
in an offering in the Old Testament. Leviticus 2.1 When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. It was a perfume that was placed upon an offering to make it come up as a sweet-smelling savor unto God. Myrrh was a scent or perfume that was applied to clothing. The Jews did not practice embalming dead bodies like the Egyptians did with mummies. Instead, the Jews prepared a dead body for burial by washing, dressing it in special garments, and packing it with fragrant myrrh and other spices to stifle the smell of a body as it decayed. Listen to John 19.39. Nicodemus also, who earlier heard, came to Jesus by night, came, this is after Jesus has died, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, to anoint the body of Jesus with myrrh. Origen says that the wise men brought gold because he was king, brought frankincense because he was priest, and brought myrrh in celebration of his death and resurrection. I don't know if we can go that far. I don't know what they understood. I don't know what they got. But certainly we can say they came to him to worship him. They came knowing that he was God. How much did they know? They knew that the Christ had been born. How did they know it? We know in our text that they are recipients of revelation, at least at the end, when they receive a vision that tells them, depart and don't go the same way. I believe that God gave them revelation as to who this child was. How much revelation? I don't know. Could he have revealed so much to them that they knew that he was going to die? For sin, certainly he could have. God could have. Did he? I don't know. But I do know they came to worship him who was born the Savior of the world. And worship him, they did. And then we find in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here is God protecting them, not the child. The child is going to flee. That's going to be a fulfillment of prophecy as well. This is God's protection of these wise men who had worshipped 
Jesus. These are believers. These are a fulfillment of the statement that many are going to rejoice. That he's the savior of all men that believe. Here is a fulfillment of that he is the king, not of just the Jews only, but of the world. And here is a sovereign God moving perhaps three kings, but three important individuals from a far away nation to come, throw themselves on the ground before this baby and worship him as the Christ, the Savior, the King. That is the heart of Christmas. That's what it's all about. And notice that when they gave gifts in verse, I think it's uh, 11, 2.11. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. They opening their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because it's an offering, it's only suitable that they give these gifts to Jesus. It doesn't say they gave the gifts to them. They made an offering to Jesus. Family benefited from it, to be sure. But they were doing this for Jesus. Doing it for Jesus. This is a a time of giving gifts. That's great. I love the tradition. And it's wonderful to give and receive gifts. But a matter of true worship is giving our gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference when we pass an offering plate and give to the Lord than when we give to one another. When we give to the Lord, it's out of recognition that all that we have comes from Him. He has provided it. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. It's a statement of dependence. It is with faithful obedience that we come bringing our tithe, believing that he provides for us. He is worthy. He deserves. And then we come with our gifts. More than our tithe, more than our 10%. Acknowledging that he is worthy of our all. Worthy of our all. That is true worship. So in conclusion and application, five simple thoughts. First, we should be willing to go to great lengths to worship Jesus. Number two, we should openly, publicly declare our desire to worship Jesus. 
unabashedly, unabashedly, we should associate ourselves with the Christmas story in such a way that we make it clear to people that we actually worship this baby. We believe he's God in the flesh. We believe he's God. We believe he's our Savior. And we worship him. Not just fuzzy thoughts, but we actually worship him. And in our worship, we should fall on the ground before him, saying that he has our ultimate allegiance. More than any earthly king, more than our father or our mother, our sister or our brother, but complete and total allegiance to him. And that scares people. That worries people. That kind of fanaticism unnerves people. When you say that nothing matters more to me than to please God and to serve him. It was unnerving back then. It's unnerving today. We should worship Jesus by bringing gifts to him. We should worship Jesus by being obedient to the word of God, even as they were obedient to the revelation that God gave them concerning Herod and departing another way. And then lastly, all this Advent season, I've been talking about rejoicing. Each week, a different reason to rejoice in the Christmas message and season. This morning, the wise men rejoiced when they saw the star because it led them to the place where Jesus was. It led them to worship him. This morning, let us rejoice. Rejoice in whatever and whoever has led us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Take time. Thank whoever it was that led you to the Lord. Whoever was influential and you're placing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to have this incredible service. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be in candlelight. We're going to have all kinds of different music. It's going to be pleasant to listen to. We're going to eat really good food. We're going to be able to look at all these different things that have been made to remind us of Christmas. But let's rejoice together as we worship 
the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us unique. We are gathering together with people who worship him. Worth, worship is from an old English word, means worth-ship. He is worthy, for he is God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your condescension in taking upon yourself human flesh and becoming a man and dwelling among us so that you and you alone could be the mediator between God and men. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Savior of all who believe in him. Not just of Jew, but of Gentile. Not just of Americans or Israelis, but peoples in any place, in any land. For it is through Jesus Christ and him alone. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We thank you for that great truth. We thank you that Jesus is the Savior. Died on the cross, rose again. We don't know how much the wise men knew, but we know what the Word of God teaches us. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is gathered here today, who's come simply because it's Christmas, it's tradition, perhaps like the carols, like the experience, and have gathered together to hear the story, but really didn't come to truly worship Jesus. I pray that today that every single person in this room would worship him. Come and figuratively bow before him, prostrate themselves, submit themselves fully to his authority in their life, acknowledge the need of a savior, and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to bring them into a right relationship with God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.